Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Pre-Order Bonus Podcast, episode number nine. I'm your host, Cameron Warren, joined as ever by my co-host, Jacob Price, and we're here to talk about video games. Jake, tell me about your week. How's it going? I mean, the week has been pretty good, as you know, in uh, my personal life, interviewing for a new job. I really hope it comes through. It'd be uh, a good increase to my video game budget, so, you know, benefits roll over to the podcast as well. Um in terms of gaming this week, I this is probably the first time since 2017 that I've like completely ditched Destiny and um and bum, bum, I, bum. it's over it's over um so I've been playing a ton of The Witcher three still still super engrossed in that I'm wrapping up Breath of the Wild and I have kind of returned to my roots and I've been pulling up some indie games I played a little more Astroneer I've been playing this game Sea Salt that I talked to you about um, still doing a little bit of children of Morda. It's so it's in terms of gaming, it's been a really fun week. It's been a week where I've been really impressed with the different narratives that I have been enjoying. So it's been a great week. I love it. You're still, so, I mean, first off, I don't think anyone's going to fault you for uh, <clears throat> giving up destiny <laughs> to play the Witcher three and uh, uh, breath of the wild. I mean, yeah, it's on. true. No one really? is. Yeah. Come on, come on. No one's going to follow mm-hmm. you for that. But yeah, I mean, I think honestly from everything I'm seeing, from, I've obviously given up on Destiny 100%. Um, <laughs> I think the only one kind of left in our in our friend group is uh, Rob, Rob, Robsta, who we have yet to have on the podcast, though we, we will, will soon. We need to have him on. Once we find the right game. Really good friend of ours. Uh, the most hardcore Destiny player in our group by far. Right. He's still going. He's still going strong. I've been kind of keeping up with uh, what's going on content wise. Mm-hmm. It looks like it looks like they're trying their best, but they're kind of falling flat. That's kind of what it seems. You know, like. I will say I actually really enjoy the seasonal model that they have going on right now. It, you know, in a lot of the criticism comes down. Well, they're using FOMO as a weapon now, but honestly, I feel like I could play Destiny once a week and get to the other games that I really want to play. Like, and I can hop on and do a raid once a week. I don't have to worry about the game. I don't have to worry about keeping up with it. And then I could get back to what I really want to do. And um, I've just, right now, I've just uh, been sort of making a transition in the games that I'm playing, really focusing on narrative-driven games. And when it comes to multiplayer, I've been enjoying Apex, and I've been I've been back at Overwatch, even. Yeah, I saw that. I actually just jumped back in to play a little bit of Apex for Season 4. And I always tend to do it, like with the new seasons that launch. There's only been four of them, but I always jump back mm-hmm. in and, you know, have a good time for a couple weeks uh, until I just get completely crushed and lose all <laughs> ounce of confidence. Man, I wish that game... Um, I wish that game had better better skill-based matchmaking. My understanding is the skill-based matchmaking has kind of ruined the game because you're always kind of paired with... It's this complex. I wish I understood this this whole uh, dynamic better, but this complex relationship in first person shooter kind of multiplayer games with matchmaking and how people with different skill sets get matched up. And actually, Rob, Rob and I were talking about this. Like, if you are just slightly better than the average person at a first person shooter, then it's like the standard deviation to go up to the next tier is so small that you suddenly enter like the elite tier, even though you're terrible. And so you just become like cannon fodder for the streamers and the hardcore, (laughs) like predator. They call like the high ranking players predator level, I think. And you just become like fodder and like 
candy for them to eat up in every match and it's that's just not super fun so mm-hmm. hence that's why everyone does burner accounts <laughs> i i can't do burner accounts anymore i um i can't i play apex that. and i play on my account i actually played with some randos and won a match um and i don't know if it's because it's the beginning of the season and like you said i'm not sure entirely how their matchmaking system works if things reset at the beginning of the season or not but i don't know it, when it comes to battle royales um the only ones that really have strong legs in my opinion that they could still stand on is Fortnite and apex and we've seen uh there was like realm royale there's i think spellborn or something these other ones that were trying to play with new mechanics and i just don't think they ever stuck because they're just not as snappy and they don't just feel as good although i never liked Fortnite, but that's another story yeah apex is a great game like we talked about it's it's just really well done um you mentioned The Witcher 3. I've also been continuing my path. I think we're at the same spot. We're kind of playing that game yeah. uh, kind of in even in even spades. It's it's really well done, man. It's it's super good. We're going to do it. We're totally going to do an episode. It's probably going to be like an hour and a half episode <laughs> about The Witcher 3. There's a lot to unpack oh my gosh. for that game. It's definitely not as good as everyone says it is, but it's also as good as everyone says it is at the same time, if that makes sense. There's just, there's um, just some... Obviously, I could talk about the side quests they take of that game forever, and I, I really hope games here are not really take a leaf out of the Witcher's book when it comes to side quests. Um, but yeah, I'm starting to get a little bugged. Uh, not bugs, sorry, wrong word choice. A little annoyed with some of the movement things, um, and I just have to laugh every single time I'm on my horse because it is such a mess. <laughs> yeah, the horse riding, the movement. All that stuff's clunky. We're gonna unpack this in a major mm-hmm. way. I think I think we both agree we want to get at least like seventy five percent away through. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. um, there's just because it's just a huge game. Like like I think we're just barely getting. Yeah, I don't even know how far in percentage wise I am. Honestly, I haven't. Even I think looked. we're like thirty forty percent uh, of the way in. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I've been playing The Witcher three two, um, and then. Uh, just recently kind of exploded onto my radar as a astroneer. So like a couple of weekends ago, mm-hmm. CPA assassin who we've had on the podcast when we talked about, uh, when we talked about, um, hollow Knight, uh, him and I were just like messing around and like, Oh, what should we play tonight? I know you had mentioned that you mm-hmm. played astroneer and I was like, what the heck? Let's give it a shot. It's on game pass. I think we talk about game Pass on every, every episode. episode. Yeah. Mm hmm. If anyone who works at Microsoft is listening to this podcast, <laughs> just let Phil Spencer know we're happy to give, you know, promo. If he just wants to give us a quick shout out on Twitter. Um, no, seriously, that Game Pass is great. We always yeah. say that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, popped into Astroneer and just kind of slowly got into the loop of that game. Mm-hmm. And like so far have had, I think, three like five hour marathon evening mm-hmm. sessions that have completely ruined my mm. day. <laughs> Um, that game we should all we're also going to talk about that game for sure at some point. It's it's quite it's something special. Yeah, the grind loop in that game I think is, I can't ever say it's perfect, but it's it's near perfect. I think in that game, the the balance between grind and reward is spot on, and and that's what I really enjoy about it. Performance it has issues, especially multiplayer, but in terms of that sort of progression, I think it's it's nailed it. But Jake, the game that we're actually here to talk about today is uh, none of those. It's actually Frostpunk. Uh, we're here to talk about Frostpunk. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people listening to the podcast 
probably have never heard of Frostbuck, Frostbuck and have no idea mm. what it is. Um, it's one of those games that's very uh, – it came out on PC. It's kind of a hardcore PC gamer simulator type mm-hmm. game. Um and we're going to talk about it. Jake, tell everybody how we're going to analyze and take a look at Frostpunk. Sure thing. Uh, as always, we're going to break this down into three different categories. The first category is the narrative. Uh, I think we've got some interesting things to say here to say here about the narrative of Frostpunk. We're going to be talking about how the story is told. I would like to talk a little bit about how the, who is telling the story and how you, the player, receive information in regards to the story, which I think is some of the unique aspects of this game. Um, and we're going to talk about what in the narrative is successful, what about it is artistic, what about it keeps you engaged and keeps you wanting to learn more about the universe that Frostpunk is set in. The second uh, category we're going to discuss is mechanics. This is the actual gameplay, how we get down into it, what systems are in place, how do you engage. Uh, because, you know, this is a management sim. You're building a town and you're managing resources, all these things. So mechanics, we're going to talk about the different systems that are in place. What sets this apart from other games of its type? I, I couldn't stop making comparisons between this and City Skylines, for example, when I was playing it. And then the final category is the gameplay loop or the longevity of the game. And here we open things up. We're going to talk about how Frostpunk sits amongst other management sims. We're going to talk about... Because this is an indie game, right, from an indie studio and publisher, we're going to talk about sort of how it operates in that sphere in terms of the video games industry and and how it's successful and whether or not we're still going to be talking about this game in a year or two to come or if we're just going to completely forget about it. That's right. So Frostpunk, um, let's just give the the high level on Frostpunk. This is uh, developed by a studio called 11-Bit Studios based in Poland. Uh, alongside, I don't actually know where they're located physically, but CD Projekt Red, creator of The Witcher 3, much-renowned studio who's coming out with Cyberpunk 77 later this year, also located in Poland. Um, So just as a quick uh, trivia side note Mm -hmm. there. Um, Frostpunk, what is it? It's a city builder, um, similar to, like you mentioned, uh, City Skylines. Um, If you don't know what a city builder is, think uh, SimCity. That was probably one of the first ones back in the mm-hmm. day. Um, what's another big uh, city builder, Jake, that kind of comes to mind that's popular? I, I would almost just say it's not quite city-focused, but like Roller Coaster Tycoon was huge and uh, similar. 100%. It's kind of same vein as that. The twist here is that this game is not, you know, as a, like a straightforward city builder, and we'll talk about more in the, more about that in, in a minute. Uh, but it came onto the scene uh, just last year, um, kind of early last year and uh, became really, really popular really fast because it's got its interesting kind of unique mechanic. And we'll go in depth on this is uh, something called the book of laws. Mm-hmm. So as you're building, building your city and, and uh, trying to survive, there's a book of laws where you have to make very, very controversial decisions about how you want to run your city what laws you want to implement to keep people alive, to keep resources coming in. And the interesting part about it is it's kind of gloomy post-apocalyptic apocalyptic nature because basically every decision you make in the Book of Laws is a bad decision. But <laughs> anyhow, with that <laughs> with that said, let's talk about uh, the narrative of Frostbuck. Jake, give us a kind of primer on what's the situation with this game. Like, where does it take place and what, what's happening? 
So the game originates from London, England. Um, a bunch of uh, English people. Well, this is sort of the end of the world. We've used up all the resources, uh, and people are starting to move north in an effort to find more resources. And of course, they cover to these like horrible blizzard, you know, wasteland type areas. And they're essentially trying to set up colonies and and survive as humans. And so, what's interesting about this game is that it is very much city building management but also survival right and the narrative um, I wanted to talk about sort of how this narrative was is delivered to the player and so you as the player sort of the de facto captain I believe they refer to as the captain of the colony and you're the one who's in charge of managing resources directing fellow colonizers Uh, they're not even really colonizers really because resettlement people whatever anyway you're in charge of them and you're telling them where to go um and like Cameron says you're in charge of the book of laws which essentially as you progress through the day and you're or through the game and your goal is to get through 48 days of survival in these horrible conditions um you have the opportunity to enact certain laws that change different behaviors of the people how long they work who works how you dispose and treat uh dead people and and people who are terminally ill and sick and all these things and so it very it's very much a grim tone but most most of the narrative comes through people talking directly to you as a captain saying hey this is a problem and this needs to get fixed now and one of the earliest clues that the game gives you head on is sometimes people will want things done now and they want you to make a specific decision but keep in mind that is not always the best decision it is only the fastest decision or the quickest solution. And so the game from the get-go get narratively is setting you up to know that you are in charge of a lot of people's lives and you have to make moral decisions that could be very controversial and people will tell you that. You get a lot of feedback from these people criticizing your decisions as a leader. And yeah, I mean, narratively, I think that's an interesting delivery method. It's through the people. It's almost like reading a Twitter feed. I think it's actually doing a lot more than a, than most city builder games. Um, and it's got kind of an in- interesting way to approach the story. It, it definitely sets you up with a narrative. Like you mentioned, it's sort of this post-apocalyptic steampunk, like 18th century setting where there's a new ice age and they've got like kind of 18 late 18th century, like tech that where they're trying to build um, kind of the central premise is they have these, big heating cores that basically uh keep the city like heated Mm -hmm. during this like second ice age um and without properly powering the heating core which is part of the mechanics uh basically everyone freezes to death and you get like kicked out um yep so it's interesting it's definitely an interesting study it's that that's what kind of the one of the most intriguing things and probably honestly is like what got me to actually pull the trigger and purchase this game is the setting was really intriguing there was this whole conversation about the whole like book of laws mechanic um, when this game came out and kind of how it ties really deeply into the narrative. So a really interesting and kind of um, a powerful use of tying kind of mechanics to storytelling, because as you make decisions in the book of laws that actually affect the gameplay and how well you're balancing kind of the game's central pieces um, mechanically, which we'll talk about in a a second, uh, the story and the narrative actually change as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so like if, for example, if you decide that 
you want to institute child labor laws, yes, it is that type of game. You can institute child <laughs> labor laws to keep your resources running. Uh, I get like I mentioned, all the decisions pretty much are bad. Yeah, it's just bad. which is the right bad decision, right? Um, then your people are going to start to get ticked. So kids will start working in factories, but then kids will start to get hurt. And then, or they'll, they'll complain and they'll, a little storyline will pop up and say, Hey, little Billy in the, who's working in the coal factory got hurt. You know, are you going to give him the day off to kind of give people (laughs) hope that like you're a benevolent leader or are you Mm -hmm. just going to make him go back to work? And if you give him the day off, then people kind of get discouraged. They're like, what the heck? How come this kid got the day off? And anyway, there's these interesting kind of tie-ins between mechanics and uh and kind of how the story plays out yeah it's really interesting because a lot of open world games especially rpgs uh pretty much it's like a a guaranteed tagline that'll say oh the decisions you make in this game will have consequences later in the story and that's you know the de facto sort of selling point for a lot of these rpgs and i think what's really fascinating about frostpunk is that is so much a part of the game Uh, the decisions that you make have severe repercussions on what's going to happen and uh, I really like that narratively about the game. Now, the narrative is kind of frantically paced. I would say that the game is frantically paced in terms of how difficulty ramps up at different scenarios that you have to, you know, address. But narratively, what I want to bring up is fairly early on in the game, you get hints of other colonies, other settlement programs that are trying to find a place to be. And you happen to find this this sort of canyon is like a circular enclosure, it, you know, surrounded by cliffs, a place where you can actually set up uh, a settlement and you have the opportunity to send out scouts and to go rescue people. And I think narratively and like, we're going to talk about this more in the mechanics, but narratively and mechanic in, in terms of mechanics, the tie there is so interesting. And I think in terms of pacing for the narrative and how the story is actually told that was one of my favorite parts of the early game of Frostpunk is saying, oh, okay, you've found some stability. But guess what? At this point, are you going to invest in reaching out to other people as well and trying to get them settled and try to help them survive? Yeah, I was about to say that there's, there's, a, uh, there's a mystery, kind of an overarching mystery of you're sending out your scouts, which you have to do because mechanically you need more engineers and more workers mm-hmm. to kind of advance your civilization, research more technologies. You need people to work in your factories to kind of keep things moving. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting, though, is as you send the party out and as you uncover different locations across the Antarctic, which let me just bring this up really quickly. I still haven't figured out why they go to Antarctica during the Ice Age, but I think like goes super, maybe it's not Antarctica. They go very, very far north, which you'd think in the Ice Age, you'd want to go like south. I don't know. Did we figure out that it had something to do with like, there's lots more resources in the north because it's like untapped from civilization? That was the, I don't that know. was the assumption, but that was the biggest question mark narratively that I had. I was like, wait, why did, why? Cause I mean, at one point you have people who want to return to London and they threaten to leave the settlement. Right. And I'm thinking, okay, so why did they leave in the first place if maybe going back to London was just as hopeful as this crap? You know? <laughs> I don't know. I think it imply I think it implies that the people are actually going to London like knowing they're gonna die, but they don't care because they they know that like London's gonna r- run out of resources like no matter what. Whereas in the north there's like 
you know, these kind of untapped resources. I don't know. Super confusing, but cool nonetheless. What I was going to say is like, as you go out and discover these little settlements and these little spots on the map that you can kind of send your scouts to it, um, that's, that's how you uncover and progress the narrative in the story. Mm -hmm. So for example, like you'll come across, uh, you know, you'll come across another camp and it will be abandoned. And then there'll be like a little narrative blip that will say you went to the camp. They left a whole bunch of coal. There's no food. There's a couple of dead bodies on the ground. What the heck happened here? And then that news will make it back to the people. And then the people will say, Oh my gosh, there's all these other settlements. Like people are dying. And then that causes like a chain of events in the story that will push the story forward. And people are like demanding, Oh, we need to go back to London because blah, blah, blah. That's, that's like semi spoilerish, but you get the idea. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all really cool and really well done. What's not in my opinion, super well done. And you brought this up, Jake is the frantic pacing and the, what I think is an insane difficulty curve. <laughs> um, and I, sorry, I shouldn't say insane, but basically, um, the the difficulty curve is this is I think I don't think you can I think it's literally impossible to beat the campaign on a single playthrough. No, um, I've restarted this game six times, and each time I've gotten a little bit further, mm-hmm. but then I've reached a point where I just realized there's no way I can course correct unless I go back so far that i might as well just restart my entire playthrough so i can play it fresh Mm -hmm. it's true and it's it's designed to be difficult it's designed that way to make you sort of fail and learn from your mistakes and try again but to me that's frustrating and this is kind of getting into mechanics to me i want to be able to just can i just pick easy and just kind of play through the game (laughs) and then up the difficulty instead of there's no other way to learn except to fail and so for me like that puts a blocker because i want to know what what happens in the narrative i actually want to see like the the progression and the continuation of my base Mm -hmm. and researching new technologies and uncovering more of the story but this game literally like there's no difficulty slider that i know of like you can't just drop it onto easy and like just keep going Mm -hmm. and have them like take the kind of the the edge off of trying to keep your people alive Mm -hmm. so anyway that's frustrating because like last week, um, I would play the game for another probably four or five hours to refresh on, you know, for this podcast. And I kind of reached just a little bit further than I had the last time I played. Mm-hmm. And ultimately I probably won't go back because honestly, like, I don't know that I, like, I know what to do differently now, but it's like so iterative that I just don't want to replay the same thing over and over again. Right. Right. So Jake, anything else to say about the narrative? It's definitely an interesting setting. It's an intriguing setting. That that's kind of what me got got me into the game in the first place. But what else do you have to say about the narrative? Not too much. I mean, just to sum up, I think it's an interesting narrative, especially. And you mentioned this it, when you compare it to other city building games. City building games typically don't have a narrative, and that's okay. But I think it's refreshing to play a game that city, you know, resource management focused that has a narrative. And not only is the narrative there in existence, but it's actually interesting. And so for me, that was definitely a highlight of this game is to be like, oh, wow, it's not just, okay, you're in a you know frozen wasteland, try to survive. But 
the interesting thing is that there is a narrative, the way that it's told through the different community members and the experiences that they're having through the different blips, like you mentioned that you get when you go scouting to different locations on the you know world map. I think that's really well done. And I think it really fits the genre of game very well. Yeah, I agree. So let's talk mechanics. So basically, uh, we've talked about a couple kind of mechanic, mechanical things that happen. But the main, the gist of how the game works is there are two, um, there's really, I'm going to say there's three. There's there's two, but there's actually kind of three components that you've got to watch. Um, mm-hmm. One of them is hope, which is a bar uh, on the bottom of your screen. And it goes up or down depending on the actions you take in the game. Um, and so that's stuff like, are you keeping your people housed? Are you keeping your people from being sick by building hospitals, by building a you know, more tents or more homes for them to live in. Mm-hmm. Um, are you instituting the laws that are going to progress the city forward? And if you institute a law that's controversial, that's going to lower hope, but could potentially, that could lower hope, but also lower dissatisfaction, which is the other bar on the bottom of the screen. There's two, there's dissatisfaction and there's hope. Those can go up or down depending on the decisions you make. If you run out of food, if, uh, you know, it gets too cold. Um, if you don't have, you know, enough uh, hospitals to keep your people from being sick, if you don't have enough homes for your people to sleep in. So all those things you have to kind of counteract and keep in check so that your people, your dissatisfaction levels stay low and your hope levels stay high. And that's ultimately how you like progress and win the game. Mm-hmm. The catch is, is a lot of those variables will shift up or down. And the main one that really ticks me off, but is like a really big part of it is, is the heat, Mm. the temperature, Mm -hmm. like keeping the core hot enough to keep your people warm enough because the temperature during the campaign will drop super low. And if you haven't researched the right, like heat, like heating core mechanisms to increase your ability to heat your town, you're basically 100% screwed. Like, you can't fix it. There's no way. Yeah, my most recent playthrough, that was the problem, is I had things set up pretty nice and tidy in in the settlement, but I kept running out of coal, and so the central heating kept turning off, and because it kept turning off and it was on and off all the time, um, eventually I got exiled as captain, a.k.a. you lose the game, right? The, The people just kick you out. Yeah, I think mechanically... It's very interesting. What I love about this game and what I think a lot of games could learn from Frostpunk is that Frostpunk does a fantastic job of meshing narrative and mechanics. The fact that they're the two most important meters, obviously the third one, Heat, I agree with you, but Hope and then Discontent or Dissatisfaction, the fact that those are two different meters that you have to watch out for. It might be Discontent. You might be right. I think it, whatever. But... um. But the fact is that those are mechanics of the game that you have to watch for. And in the Book of Laws, it's the other mechanic that ties in extremely neatly with narrative. And honestly, in my opinion, in terms of different mediums of art, I think this is one way that video games can excel, whereas theater, film, uh, novels, whatever, they cannot compete. They cannot, they don't, it doesn't exist in those mediums of art, you know, where narrative and mechanics mesh. And I think Frostbuck does a fantastic job of doing that, right? The Book of Laws, like you said, incredibly controversial laws, and it forces you as a player to make moral decisions, right? 
And this is situational ethics. You know, you're trying to figure out it's a whole lesson in philosophy, this game, really. Um, but what you choose narratively will have an impact mechanically in the different systems that you have in order to get resources, maintain and consume those resources. And so in that sense, I think this job or this this game has done a fantastic job. But because the difficulty is so frantic, a lot of that really interesting MIDI stuff that you could get from that narrative and mechanics and how they mesh gets lost. Yeah, it's just the difficult. And honestly, like for me, like you said, like most of the time it's been the heat that's been the problem, like keeping mm-hmm. the people warm because you have to keep that steady stream of coal. And as you keep increasing the size of your city, you have to continually research new upgrades to keep, uh, like to increase the output and like the efficiency of your generator. And then all of that takes more coal. And so you have to have a steady stream of coal. Mm -hmm. And if you don't get that formula, like just right. And then you suddenly run out of heat that essentially like destroys your discontent and, uh, totally this increases your discontent like all the way to the top and your hope drops pretty much all the way to the bottom. Yep. And then any other like mechanics or like storylines that are going on in the game, it'll be like, yep, you lost, like your people are cold, like you're done. <laughs> and then you have to go back to an old save or like, like I've you know done multiple times now, like restart my entire mm-hmm. scenario. Um, but that aside, like what you said about the, like the combination of narrative mechanics. One really good example of this is um, at a certain point in the campaign, there's a situation called uh, uh, there's a, the, you know, the game basically says, Hey, people are really scared because they heard about some town and this is mild spoilers, but they're scared about a town and because there's, you know, there's not the people there that you expect them there to be. And so there's this group called the Londoners and they're basically dissenters that are telling everybody, Hey, we should just all pack up our bags and go back to London and just get rid of this captain dude. Well, it gives you like two, two pathways in the book of laws to mm-hmm. try and, mm-hmm. and to try and like, um, combat these dissenters. And you can choose, I think it's justice and order, or faith and and uh religion or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And so it's it's these two like totally branching paths where you can kind of empower and give hope to the people through religious means, like building churches, building temples, uh like building bringing priests to the town, or you can do it through like justice and order, which is a totally different like set of buildings. And those like two branching paths not only change like all the different stuff you can do in the book of laws, but change like the types of buildings that you can build, change the way that you kind of interact with your town and keep the hope high and the, um, and the discontent low. Mm-hmm. And that's all really cool. Um, and it, I mean, it's, it's really like highly impactful decisions that like legitimately change the game. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. That's, that was the other thing that I was thinking of when, you know, in this conversation during this podcast is, that is one of those tipping points in the game narratively where it has such an impact on what you're doing mechanically and the systems that the game has to offer. It's really fascinating. It's just frustrating because it's so hard to actually get to those points of the game and then enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, part of this is I'm not I'm not really good at city builders. I like them because they're kind of relaxing to me, although mm-hmm. this game is not a very relaxing city builder. It's, it's no. like a high stress city builder, <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> which in some ways for me c- kind of defeats the point of city builders. 
If you want a relaxing study builder, I can recommend uh, Anno 1800. That's uh, <laughs> that's another game. That's not on Xbox, though, Jake, so we, we'll have to pass on that one for now. But mm-hmm. that's a very relaxing study builder for PC. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, I'm not very good at them. Like, and some people are. So the people who are really good at CD builders, they're probably, you know, if anyone listens to this podcast who's a, who's a good at city building, you should try the game. You'll probably think that we don't know what we're talking about. It's probably like way easier than we think. <laughs> but for the average kind of game player who's who hasn't played a ton of city builders, um, and if you've never played a city builder, the difficulty is going to be crazy. Like mm-hmm. you're going to have to replay the same like the campaign probably multiple times reload like a ton of different saves um it's it's fun to play it's fun to do it's got a cool narrative but but you're right i think that that difficulty curve is just it's just too hard and i think it cuts people off too too soon yeah so jake anything else to talk about mechanically um i mean i i could talk about how you know, you basically build buildings. That's the bottom line and generate resources. <laughs> like that's kind of what you do. And as far as like interaction, right. you're building buildings. You are, which is what you do in a city builder. You're, you're designing your city, which is kind of some of the fun part you can. And Frostbuck does something interesting that it builds your city in a circular pattern mm-hmm. out from the core. Mm-hmm. So you're not like building buildings anywhere you want in like a grid, which is what you kind of normally do. It's in a circular pattern. You can uh, research new technologies to advance your base um, to kind of improve your efficiency for gathering resources. Like Jake talked about, you can send out scouts, uh, which can gather resources from bases outside your city or find people or uncover new parts of the narrative. That's pretty much it in terms of like how you actually interact with this game. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's all fine. Like I've played quite a few city builders. feels kind of par for the course for, for other ones. Um, like I said, the main difference is this is like high anxiety. <laughs> yeah. Anything else to say mechanically, Jake? I don't think so. I think we kind of nailed it. Um, yeah. Technology, like the technology trees seem really straightforward. Really, if you've played any sort of RPG even or city builder game where you have to invest in different technologies, all that stuff is going to feel very at home, uh, very easy to do. But like uh, just to reiterate i mean the fact that you build in a circular grid like you said instead of you know like an actual grid speaks to how this game's mechanics and those systems tie in narratively so well i mean in the center of your map is the main heat source and so to get everybody as close as that as possible you build in different rings and different circles and so for me it's just another sort of uh, piece of evidence to how the developers thought how they wanted to combine narrative and mechanically uh, narrative and mechanics in an interesting way Okay, let's talk about the gameplay loop and kind of the longevity of this game. So I'll make a couple quick points on this and then I'll hand it over to you, Jake. So one, uh, clearly there's something here because, I mean, this game sold 1.4 million copies. That's not chump change by any means, um, especially for a a game like this. It's it's a city-building game on PC. I mean, it went to Game Pass, so I'm sure that's giving it a big boost as well. but yeah, I mean, one point four million copies for a game where you know you're essentially like building buildings on the screen. I mean, it's not it's not a shooter, it's not an RPG. Um, I'm shocked actually that it went to Game Pass for Xbox because this is like definitely a PC game through and through. Yeah. I'm, I'm impressed that they were able to bring it to Xbox. Actually, I think that's cool that Xbox players are going to get to experience it. But 
sold really well. I think I think the the novelty of the Book of Laws and that mechanic, I think, kind of shook up the that kind of genre enough that a lot of people um, and, and <clears throat> it gave it a, the game a lot of attention from media outlets. Uh, yeah, because it was like nobody's really doing games like this. Uh, like in, ter- in terms of no one's doing city builders like this, but no one's really doing this kind of book of laws mechanic either like this right. really anywhere where you're kind of making these sort of grim decisions. Uh, you know, that no one's kind of really seen that interaction of kind of gameplay and mechanics before. And it was, it was, uh, it's novel and interesting. And so from that perspective, like the game's doing really, really well. So longevity wise, they just released an expansion pack uh, at the beginning of the year. That's right. A brand new kind of area with a new storyline. So yeah, this game's getting a lot of attention. It's doing really well. Yeah, it's um, it's I mean, it's a good game. I the thing is, is why I'm, the reason why I'm being a little hesitant right now is because Frostpunk for me follows a very specific trend in gaming, especially indie games. That has been incredibly popular for the last four or so years. And that is not having a difficulty slider. And it's just tough as nails. You've got to, you know, grit your teeth and you got to sit there and think about the game that you're playing. And you got to think about what the game has offered you. And you've really got to learn from your mistakes. And so I don't want to say it takes an intelligent player to play these games. But these games like Frostpunk are specifically and very deliberately demanding more of the player this isn't a game where you could just hop in and expect to have a good time uh you're gonna have to sit down you're gonna have to scratch your head you're gonna have to fail a few times before you can actually get the desired outcome i i have a lot of mixed feelings about this trend i think if if a game is going to do this it has to pace its difficulty perfectly and what i mean by perfectly is go play celeste (laughs) um and the, so the difficulty needs to be paced incredibly well. Um, and I think you need to have mechanics and systems that are not overly complicated. You can have lots of them, but I think they need to be concise and I think they need to be purposeful. And for me, when it comes to Frostpunk, as much as I love and I really think that this studio has done a fantastic job combining narrative and mechanics in a way that we don't see often enough in video games, I think that this difficulty, the frantic pacing is a huge turnoff for a lot of people. And so what I would like to know is that of the 1.4 million copies of this game sold, how many of those copies, you know, how many of those players have actually beat the game? How many of them have made it through the campaign and made it to day 48 and survived? Um, just looking, I love looking at Xbox. Yeah, I was about to say that. Yeah, right. I mean, I love looking at Xbox achievements um, just to see what percentage of the player base that owns the game has accomplished the achievement. And in Frostpunk on Xbox, I don't think there's one that goes over 10%, which is incredibly low for a, for a game, right? Um, so, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's the one thing that bugs me about this game is I feel like I, I really want to enjoy it. There are things about this game I really love, but I feel like it's for a niche demographic that I just don't participate in you know i don't know i mean 1.4 million copies are like i mean that's that's super successful oh yeah um now there's a lot of games like this though there's stuff like hearts of iron 
the Hearts of Iron series, like Paradox Interactive. Um, yeah. If anyone knows who they are, they make incredibly complex strategy video games. Like so complex that you literally need to study the game like you're getting a degree <laughs> in the game in order to even be able to play at a semi-competent level. And those those types of games like definitely have an audience um, mm-hmm. because they continue to make them. Um, so a game like this that's like super difficult, but you know it's uh, you know 1.4 million copies. It's obviously doing something right in that niche audience, and and I think that's okay. Mm-hmm. I do agree 100% though with what you're saying. Like for a kind of broad mainstream audience game i'll even say broad mainstream gaming audience which is a little bit more hardcore than the broad audience uh-huh. who spends like you know a consistent amount of time playing video games i think you're 100 percent right like you either make a difficulty slider where you let me choose like how stressed out i want to be when i play <laughs> the game which that's kind of how i look at difficulty sliders it's like easy is like oh yeah i'm gonna play this at night to chill out medium's like i want to think about it Hard's like, I want to have a little bit of stress, you know, because I want that satisfaction of of beating it at a high level. Mm-hmm. This game does give you that option. It throws you in the deep end. It tells you learn to swim. The problem is, is I just keep drowning and drowning uh, <laughs> in the deep end, like over and over again. At some point, I'm just not going to want to get, get back in the pool. Right. Um, but anyway... So that that's really the gameplay loop here. I th- I think this is definitely for if you're going to play this multiple hours, it's because you're really into um kind of the narrative it provides. And there are multiple scenarios. So just as a heads up, like there's a campaign, but there's also like three or four I think different scenarios that have different objectives and kind of different end goals that you can play and then they also just came out with an expansion. So there's a ton of content. Um so if you try this out like on Game Pass and you feel like you actually get the hang of it and and can get out of the the deep end of the pool or get out of the deep end of the pool like we've kind of been unable to then uh there's a lot for you to play yeah i i and what i do like about the extra modes that they've added to the game is that you only have to reach day 20 in the main campaign to access them you don't have to beat the main campaign i think i would be much more annoyed at this game if that were the case, if you had to be the campaign before you could do other options of the game. But the fact that you just have to really understand how the game operates and then you get these different modes that have different objectives. I think that's really a great way to extend the the lifetime of the game for when you're playing it and give it a lot more replayability. And so I do really like that about this mode. No, there are no difficulty settings. Yes, maybe Jacob is just being a wimp about this game or whatever. But I do like that you can access variety within the game um, without having beat the campaign. I think that's a great way. It's like, oh, you know, I can't get the campaign. I really stuck. I can't get past day 30 because this thing starts happening. Why don't I try one of these different modes and sort of see how that plays out? So, Jake, what else do we have to say about Frostpunk and kind of its long-term conversation and, and its gameplay loop to kind of keep players coming back? Well, it definitely needed an expansion if they wanted people to come back. Even though I just said that there's plenty of content with the different modes, this game has been out for a a while now. And if you really want people to come back to this game, an expansion is the way to do it. You keep the mechanics, but you change the story, you change the setting. And I think that's fine for this type of game. I think in terms of the conversation that we'll be having about this game in the future, 
I think we will still be talking about it because it did something narratively that was very captivating for a city building game. And I think it'd be fascinating to see other city building games or research management games that aren't farm simulators um, to have an actual narrative, you know? Um, so I think that's something that this game did extremely well. And it did it in a way where it, it really made you sit down and analyze, okay, especially your first playthrough, you're like, okay, what would I do as a leader? Right. I think in subsequent playthroughs, you're kind of like, okay, you aren't quite as immersed and you're thinking more about how can I actually get further in this game? But I think especially for the initial playthrough, maybe the first two or three playthroughs, I really think that people are going to be talking about how immersive the game is narratively in the role that you occupy as the captain of this settlement. Yeah, I agree. I think people will be talking about kind of how this game is executed on its concepts in a way kind of differently than really kind of anyone else out there mm-hmm. in terms of the book of laws and kind of the depressing situation that the game puts you in, but at the same time, like intriguing because you've got to make really, really hard decisions like over and over again. And the game kind of forces you to that position. So yeah, I think they'll talk, people talk about that for the long time, but other than that, uh, you know, I don't think this is going to be like a mainstream uh, talk of the town. Um, but uh, it's a fun game. I think it's it's like like we've already said like twelve times. It's on Game Pass, <laughs> so give it a shot. See what you think. I think there's a lot here. If you just kind of play, even you know, for four or five hours, just to kind of get the gist of it, I think you'll get your money's worth. I mean, it's it, even like I mean, I, I I said that you know I got frustrated and and kind of tapped out of the game multiple times, but I did go back multiple times. Right. Um. So I just want to make that clear that. It, there was enough there for me to want to go back and want to get better and kind of learn it. Mm-hmm. Um, and who knows, maybe I'll jump back in again and see if I can make it past that hurdle and kind of see the rest of the story. Cause I'm still interested to see what happens for sure. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, Jake, that is it for talking about Frostpunk. Um, we have a lot of games on deck to talk about. The big one that's on my mind constantly is The Witcher 3, <laughs> a big episode coming up talking about The Witcher sometime. Um, I think next time we're going to talk about Subnautica. Is that right? Yeah, finally we're going to get around to talking about Subnautica. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's going to be a really good one. That game, ooh, that's uh, that's going to be fun to talk about. Mm-hmm. And lots of other stuff this year to talk about. Tim Tim. Yes. Man, uh, this year's actually been a surprise for me. I, I thought I wasn't going to have anything to play right now. Um, and I've already got a backlog of like five games. It's, <laughs> I think it's fascinating. And they're, and they're old games too, which is funny. Right. I'm when I finish the Witcher three, you know, in three years or whatever, I don't know. I'm going to finally play red dead redemption two. Um, I'm finally oh getting, I'm finally getting around <laughs> to Sekiro and I, you know what we need to do is we need to do, I know this will be hard for you, Cameron, but do an episode on near automata because that's a game that I'm going to play this year. And, <laughs> uh, no don't don't tell rob i said this but uh so just so everyone knows rob that's rob's robsta who we'll have on the podcast that's his favorite video game of all time so yeah. actually you know what we should definitely do that because <laughs> then i'll be forced to finally keep my word to rob and actually play past the tutorial mission there you go but no there's a lot of really good indie games coming out this year and i think we've finally see how all these indie studios are transforming into mid-sized studios so i think it's a really exciting time in uh smaller studios and in that sort of range of video games 
Yes, it is. Lots to talk about, Jake. Um, but I think I'm going to get back to playing some video video games tonight myself. All right. Um, thanks, everybody. Have a good week.